I'm Claire Liu, and I'm the CEO of Know Your Team. We're software that helps leaders avoid becoming a bad boss. And today, I am so honored to have an absolute expert on leadership today. I have Chip Conley, who is a New York Times bestselling author, an incredible entrepreneur who started a boutique hotel company, Joy de Vivre, I believe maybe 24 some years ago. And 32, 33 years. Oh, 32. All right. And um, eventually sold it and, and really was a, you know absolute standard for, for hospitality, very much in the industry. And then uh, more recently was Airbnb. Uh, head of global um, partnerships, I believe. And, global hus- or, hospitality and, and hospitality. And, there we go. And strategy. And strategy. Long title and and no no doubt li- living up to it. And most recently, though, uh, the reason I had reached out actually to Chip is because he wrote this incredible book called uh, Wisdom at Work, which you'll notice I've got like a million little sticky notes in it because I was so taken by it. It talks about the makings of a modern elder in the workplace and the differences in generations in the workforce and was really inspired reading it, uh, thought about just sort of my own personal growth, about my parents and... So happened to see Chip speak specifically about this topic in the book in San Francisco, and so begged to have him on the podcast and here yeah. he is today. Well, honored <laughs> to be here, Claire. Thank you. It's uh, great to be here. Awesome. Well, Chip, here's how this works. I've got one question that I'm going to ask you about leadership. So you ready? Yep. Go for it. All right. Let's do this. So the question that I've been asking leaders who I respect and admire is, what's one thing or several things that you wish you would have learned earlier as a leader? I think this is true of many of us who have had, who have some years behind us as a leader. And I don't think we realize as we grow into our leadership that the more senior you are in a group or an organization, the more contagious your emotions are. So mm. this is, I think, particularly true in young companies where the power you know, moves to a 25-year-old or a 32-year-old much faster than it did in the past. Whatever you bring to work with you, whether it's anxiety or anger or dismissiveness or judgment, Hmm. it's sort of writ large. It becomes something that as you get more senior, people almost are looking for signals from you. So they sometimes make a story in their own head about what it is that they think is going on in your head. And so this is why, you know, being an authentic leader and pretty much what you see is what you get is helpful. First of all, it takes away the gossip and the storytelling of like, well, what's really going on here? Sure. But also I think it helps you understand as that leader that whatever you're putting into the workplace is going to get contagious. It's going to become viral and it's going to grow. Therefore, understanding that vulnerability and authenticity is how you're going to operate helps create a workplace where people are more likely to be authentic as well. I'm smiling over here because, I mean, for for so many reasons. So one, this analogy of or description of of emotions is being contagious, right? I I think we often don't think of that, right? We think, okay, the things that are going inside my head, the struggles, the concerns, the anxiety, whatever, like that's about me. Like that has nothing to do with my team. But to your point, it sort of seeps through no matter how much you might try to 
to disguise it. You can't disguise it, you might argue. Or uh, I would also argue the higher you are in leadership, it may not even be an issue of disguising it. It may be an issue mm-hmm. of people making stories up thinking that's hmm. what's going on, when in fact it's not even accurate. So there's one piece, which is you don't know the effect of the nonverbal emotional cues you're putting out there. And that is, ah, that's, yeah. that's the obvious one in terms of like, yep. okay, you know, you come into work and everybody's sort of excited to see you and you don't notice anybody, no eye contact. There's clearly something on your mind. You've got a grimace in your yeah. face. So everybody notes that. Now that's an obvious one. And that's, that can be yes. contagious, like what's going on? But what's more actually interesting is the more you leave it up to other people's imagination about what is going on for you, Mm. the more likely there'll be storytelling. Now, I'm not saying that there won't be storytelling anyways. (laughs) There'll be storytelling anyways. But the (laughs) the more you give some authentic clues about what is going on for you, the more it takes the wind out of the sails of the gossip and the kinds of storytelling that people go through trying to understand what's going on with their parent. Because a lot of this totally. has, has to do with how people take someone in leadership and put them up on a pedestal like they do a parent. And I'm not saying it, all of this is just purely, you know, parent-child relationship stuff. It's not only that. No, no, no. But it sure. has a lot to do with just people who are uh, perceived as the person who de- defines culture and behavior um, in an organization. I think what's so common is that we as humans, we, we just want to make sense of things. Like the things just have to make sense to us in some way. That, that is why the stories exist. It's why the narratives exist. It's why the assumptions creep in. And to your point, if we as leaders aren't intentional and explicit, helping people make sense of the things, and it's hard to help people make sense of the things when we don't even know oftentimes what we're putting off, right? Yeah. So yeah. to your point, being being more revealing. It's interesting to hear how that can eliminate gossip. I'm, I'm curious for you, Chip, when in your career – has this happened, right? When were you unintentionally emitting those emotions or, you know, you had the grimace on your, like, has this sort of, have you sort of gone, gone through, (laughs) gone through these, these little mini wars yourself? Yeah. Uh, This will be a story in three acts. The first act is (laughs) when I had no clue. I'll tell you a story. When I was two and a half years into running my hotel company, we only had one hotel and we had an earthquake in San Francisco in October 1989. You know, earthquake, you know, the city in, you know, in, in flames, there's a lot going on. A number of people dying, the Bay, the Bay Bridge collapsing. My God. There was a lot of fear around the fact that if you're in the hotel business, n- nobody was going to be coming to town. Yeah. And at that time, I know that as a 28-year-old leader of the company, I had no clue how contagious my emotions were. And so my level of fear around it was really amplified by you know, my, the fact that I was the young CEO of this little company. And I, it was only months later that I found out from some of the team that my living in fear and having it show up in all kinds of ways, including being testy with people, I'm generally a pretty friendly guy, meant that it didn't help the situation at all. It made the situation worse. Okay. Right. Act two <laughs> is um, many years later in the dot-com bust. So I started the company in 1987 first act is 1989, October. Now accelerate to 2001 and yep. to 2003. We're in the, now we're the ba- the biggest hotelier in the Bay Area, the biggest independent hotelier uh, with 21 hotels around the San Francisco Bay Area, most of them in San Francisco. And um, we have the dot-com bust. And so what I actually got right this time is 
instead of, you know, sort of going into my bunker mentality, which a lot of times leaders do when they're actually really, yeah. really in a troubled place, they try to actually sort of hold themselves up in a, a room with people and it's very private. Everything's, everything's a secret. You know, nothing's happening. So <laughs> and so I didn't do that. Instead, I was very open and public. And I was, as one person called me, a vulnerable visionary. Hmm. So during that time, I was pretty authentic about how serious this was to the hotel market in our region. Uh, to us as a company, we were the largest hotelier, and all of our hotels were in that region. So we were we were vulnerable, but I actually created a very visionary idea with my senior leadership team of how we were going to get through that time. And uh, yeah. we were really authentic about it. And that hmm. that period from 2001 to 2006, we tripled in size during a time where most of our competitors had bankruptcies and foreclosures. And and it had a lot to do with what I wrote about in my book, Peak, How Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow. How do you apply Maslow's right. hierarchy of needs to an organizational setting? And so I can say at that time, I was... I was damn good. I mean, I really was. I It worked. <laughs> but I was very thoughtful about it. It was something I know yeah. I knew I needed to show up that way. Now act 3 when I wasn't so sure. so basically I act 1 and act 3 were not very good. Act 2 I was good. Uh, act 3 which was uh, the great recession, unlike the dot com bust where I sort of felt like we as a team were gladiators going through hmm. a difficult time. Yeah. What I felt in the great recession was I was a, you know, a prisoner. I was in a jail. Hmm. And it was a jail of my own making in the sense that, yes, the financial situation was more dire than it was during the dot-com bust, and we had more hotels. We, went, we had 1,000 employees during the dot-com bust. We had 3,500 employees during the, the Great Recession. And there were, we had just opened a lot of hotels. But actually, the situation was not so much different. But my perspective was, I didn't want to be hmm. CEO of the company anymore. So that was 22, 23 years into being CEO of the company. Ultimately, I sold the company in 2010. But 2008, 2009 were really rough years because I knew I was supposed to be putting a smile on my face. I knew I was yeah. supposed to be the vulnerable visionary. Yeah. And in fact, I had a hard time hiding my sense of wanting to just go away. <clears throat> and then ultimately, I had a really hard time with the idea that I had to be right, quite private about the fact that we were going to sell the company to a private equity firm. So it was a really hard time. I wouldn't wish that on anybody else or on myself again. So, uh, so I think I've learned my lesson along the way. <clears throat> the good news is that, you know, a lot of those people have seen me, there's a few people who've actually been with me on all three of those eras wow. during the course of now, what is 30, 32, 33 years later from when I started the company. Uh, incredible. Thank you for, for sharing that. I feel like in many ways you're exemplifying right now being a vulnerable visionary yeah. by not just showing the highlight reel, right? Oh. You could have very easily, well, you could have very easily just told me act two, Chip, right? Yeah. Like you could have very easily just been like, well, Claire, here's why I really nailed it. Here's when I was really vulnerable. Here's how I was authentic as a leader. And we rallied together and were successful. And you chose to share three stories, two out of the three being not as positive. Right. So it's in many ways, you know, really uh, walking the talk here, Chip. But I, 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 I do want to zoom in, though, on the, the act too, right? Like this idea of a vulnerable visionary, just very tactically for people who are maybe even uncomfortable by the word vulnerable, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, so many managers and leaders I'm sure you've met and encountered who are like, like, maybe that works for you, Chip. Like, maybe that's a good style for you, but that doesn't work for, or like, I, it just isn't my style. What would you say to that? What advice would you have for someone who, who's trying to wrap their head around yeah, it? Yeah, I don't think everybody has to be a vulnerable visionary. So let's use different words to maybe describe this. Yeah. So the visionary piece was confidence. So there had to be- okay. 
you had to have some confidence. If you were lacking confidence as a leader about where how you're going to get through this, that's not a good feeling to be working with an organization where the leader is clearly lacking confidence. So that's yeah. a different way of saying visionary. The vulnerable side is being candid. So maybe it's, mm. maybe it's just candid confidence. And Got it. Candid confidence, you know, another alliteration. I was just about to say, you're good with these. I like alliteration. <laughs> candid confidence it might be less extreme in terms of okay. vulnerable visionary. Vulnerable and visionary sound, wow, those are so different. But candid mm-hmm. just means you're doing your best to actually over-communicate and right. help people to understand where things are. And so that, that level of candor is really important during anxiety-producing times because what happens is during stressful times, we tend to go to the bottom of Maslow's pyramid, meaning we go to physiological mm. and safety needs. We go to survival yes. needs. And when you're in survival needs mode, it isn't very good for anybody in the organization. It means not only is the, the contagion of anxiety and fear there, but it also means people are less likely to be creative or innovative, less likely to think yes. long-term, less likely to actually look at what's best for the organization as opposed to what's best for them personally. As such, there is a tax on the organization, uh, a tax that actually means less creativity, less innovation, frankly, less happiness, that yep. has a long-term effect on the organization moving forward. And hmm. if you don't recognize that, you may not actually be the leader of that company three or four years from now when the results of that start to become very clear in performance for the organization. It may, it may not even take, it may be less than three or four years, but you know, usually it takes a while. I'm a big believer that if you have a toxic culture, which leads to unhappy <laughs> employees, which generally leads to, uh, in a service industry especially, unhappy customers, which leads yep. to market share being lost, which means profitability and sustainability as a company starts to go away. That virtuous circle, which the one I just described is the opposite of a virtuous circle, it's right, right, right. toxic circle, that sometimes takes some time from when the culture starts to get spoiled to when profitability, market share and profitability start to actually fall off substantially. That period of yes. time, and this is, you know, this is why if you're buying a business, you have to be very careful about Okay, wow, the numbers look really great. You know, if all you're looking at is the financials, what you may have is a company that has, you know, been exceptionally thrifty toward its employees and customers to actually mask something. And so the numbers look great. And then you come in and realize, oh my God, we're in a tailspin that I didn't even realize. And so this is something, you know, that's why culture is important. This is why what I call karmic capitalism is important. What goes around Hmm. comes around. It sometimes takes a while for it to come around. Yes. Do you think that that loop is true not not just in terms for for companies, but in terms for individuals as leaders and for why leaders actually have such a hard time really fixing and doing something about their blind spots? Is it because the consequences of not being transparent, not, you know, treating employees with full respect, you don't maybe see those necessarily on the balance sheet until a few years out? What do you what do you think accounts for that? Do you think that, yeah, that loop is, is the same or, or different? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it's just true. It's more of a human thing than even a leader thing. It's, it's hard, hmm. hard to acknowledge what we didn't do well, hard to admit it, hard to be in a place of looking vulnerable like that. And where it's more complicated from a leader's perspective is if you already say what your blind spot is, then everybody starts looking for it. So they start looking for other blind spots you might have. So there's an element of, you know, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. If you sort of in a a very Trumpian kind of way, admit (laughs) and I'm not here to say good or bad things about him, you know. No. But 
his style of leadership is a specific style, which is you don't admit any fault because there's an right. element of, you know what, they're, they're going to say what they say anyways. So right. I'm not going to give them any ammunition. That's one path. It's the exact opposite of the path I'm on. I think that path ultimately creates a, a very inauthentic leadership team and workplace because everybody's hiding something. And there's a sense that people have blind spots left and right. right. The flip side of it is what's something that's closer to what I do that could be problem is, problematic as well. Well, if, some, sure. if someone is constantly being the vulnerable or the candid without being the visionary or the confident, you do get to a place where you just sort of feel like you're, you're in a personal growth therapy workshop <laughs> yeah. with the leader of the company or in like, you know, you're, you're in therapy, you're in like couples right. with them. And that doesn't feel good for a lot of people either. It's a little too much information or it's, you know, I really want somebody who actually is someone who's a role model I want to live up to. And this person always seems yes. to be getting in their own way. And for some people, you know, I'm a relatively deep person. I tend to look at things deeply and that's just how I am. There's a good and a bad side yes. to that. Um, if you're someone who's just generally more shallow in the way you live the, your life in the world, you really don't want to live with a leader who's sort of taking you there because it's not necessarily where you want to go. Now, I'm not saying that's true for everybody because I, as someone hmm. who's been generally open, I have yes. absolutely had people in my company who don't fit this profile who over time found it was quite liberating to actually be a lot more open and direct in how they presented themselves to the world, sure. especially to their teams. Because, you know, in right. some ways there's a, a tax on your nervous system totally. when you're, you know, in this sort of camouflage kind of way of trying to look like something that is maybe not what you're feeling inside. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think not only is there a tax to sort of never admitting any fault, but I think for some people who might not always be comfortable with sharing things all the time, all of a sudden they might feel like they're bearing their soul every single time they have to share like company performance or financials or they try to be a little bit more transparent, you know, with, with the company if that's outside their norm. I think what I find really worth noting and for, for all, all our audience members who are listening and watching though is that in any way that you want to think about it on, you know, on the spectrum of sharing absolutely nothing in all of Trump and sharing absolutely everything all a therapy session, right? Mm -hmm. Is that just in general, though, people, like you were saying, people need to have the that hierarchy of needs fulfilled. And so in order to create a safe environment, in order for people to understand what's going on, you have to give them information. You have to give them context. Yeah. You have to give them tools for making sense of, oh my gosh, the market and competitors and oh this person, you know, this company raised a bunch of money or oh they're hiring this, you know, all these people or oh these people and and making sense of that. I mean, that's ultimately the leader's job. And so the degree onto which you, you know, you're on that that spectrum, I just really appreciate this idea of you, you have to share the information in some way. Well, I think that there's some people who would say no, that you don't have to. And, and, and there would be an, mm -hmm. uh, there's an argument out there that I disagree with, but that some people might uh, espouse, which is yeah. don't give them something they can't handle. And in some ways where it comes from is this place of like, these people are children or, or they're not responsible or they're going to use this information mistakenly or wrongly. Right. Or overburdens them. Yeah. yeah. There, so there's an element yeah. of like, just, you know, they're on the assembly line. Let's just let them just do their assembly line jobs. So it's, there's a, it's a bit of a robotic perspective, which is sure. don't distract them. This is this could be distracting. Well, the, the mistake in that is to think that people really are robots. Right. You know, that the, that the conversations are not going on. The conversations exactly. generally are going on. It is impacting engagement. It is impacting satisfaction, both for employees and for customers. You know, I, don't, I think that there's an element of... Uh, 
when you want someone to act like a robot and then you wonder six months later why they have no engagement or there's no creativity, it's like, well, you wanted them to be a robot. So there's no, no wonder why people don't come up with innovative new ideas or problem solve or absolutely because you frankly have asked them to be a robot. Right. No, it's like the assumption that you assert on other people is what you're going to get in, in return, right? right. If, if that's if that's what you believe, then that's that's what that's what people will, will give. They're not going to give you anything more. Yep, exactly. Well, so, Chip, I want to be respectful of your time here because I truly could – I mean, I could ask you a million questions. I have so many, right? Talk to you for hours. Uh, but one thing I want, did want to end on is, you know, you, you were asked by the CEO of Airbnb, Brian Chesky, to – be in this role that they never had had before, right? The head, the global head of, of hospitality, and you you entered this company, right? Mm-hmm. Never never having been in in a tech startup before, right? And very much being a mentor and advisor to so many leaders in that company. What was the thing that you found yourself repeating the most to new managers, senior managers, to Brian? Were they were they sort of different messages, or what did you find yourself being like? Oh wow, like. Here's this thing that's very obvious to me that clearly isn't obvious to so many of these leaders. What might that have been? I think the, the probably the predominant. It usually related to something around psychology or you know, mm. the human condition or understanding people, emotional intelligence. Let's call it. I think often it would be how will your team respond to that. You know what 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 will be the perspective of your team on this? Hmm. And it related to how how is you know, I, I believe that a great leader is sort of a servant leader, and I hate I hate the term servant leader. Uh, seems very very sort of U.S. you know Civil War times slaves in the South. I mean, but yeah. servant leadership's basic premise is actually quite positive, which is the higher you are in an organization, the more you're there to serve those who are lower in the organization and doing frankly a lot of the the core functions in the organization. Right. So the thing that I would see often with uh, young leaders is a sense that they felt like they had to do it all themselves. There's a, hmm. a sense that, you know, my job at age 27 with a bunch of de- direct reports who are 23 and 24 is to be, yeah. be the wise one and figure it all out. And often the best way to try to solve something was not to try to do it alone in that sort of John Wayne kind of way. But it was instead that rugged individualism. It was really actually right. how do you engage your, your team in a conversation about this so that they actually feel like their fingerprints are on the answer you come up with as well. Sometimes there's a risk in that in terms of like anarchy and you know democratic decision making and nobody gets anything done. That is a risk. And sometimes there's a risk that the person really wants to make all the decisions themselves. They love the fact that there's the autonomy that they want to have. And so that's you know worth considering as well. But more often than not, bringing it up at least to some of your senior leaders to sort of get them engaged in helping to create the solution, it comes back to a basic fundamental in life, which is if you weren't part of the of creating the solution, you're not going to be very good in executing it. So generally, people like to execute a plan that they, yes. they have their fingerprints on. Absolutely. It- what an incredible takeaway of of understanding, yeah, if you want performance, if you want great execution, the buy-in has to be there. The actual participation, the co-creation has to be there. And to your point, you know, is there potential for things to be sort of side-railed or for, for there to be a, a loud loud room with a lot of voices? Absolutely. But in many ways, that's that's the role of, of a leader to, to navigate yeah. is in finding ways to, to pull all the threads 
together in some way that's productive. And finally, I think having a, yeah. a good, strong, unified solution that may not be as yep. perfect as your own, but have everybody aligned around it and then executing on yes. it is probably going to be more successful than the brilliant idea you had that nobody else really felt any ownership over and therefore didn't yeah. execute on it with a sense of agency or ownership. Absolutely. That alignment is is everything. Well, Chip, thank you so much for, I mean, all the gold that you shared with us today. I know so many folks who are listening and watching could not be more grateful. So thanks again. Well, feel free. I hope that people will read my book, Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. Go to my website, chipconley.com. Yes, please check out the website. Definitely pick up the book. I learned so much. I just like blazed through it. It was so good. So thank you so much again, Chip. Appreciate everything. Thank you, Claire. Thank you.